just a couple things left over from the Bible class. Uh, I appreciate the questions and, and meeting so many of you afterwards in between. <clears throat> is that I have a, a website, www.offthechainministries.org. I don't think it, or .com. I don't think it was on the screen, but if you'd like to get on there, I have a quarterly report that I, that I write for those that support my work and for the congregations that support me. It's posted on there, but if you'll get me your email address and you'd like to be on that mailing list, uh, get it to Mitch. I'm sure he's got my email address, my contact information. I'd be glad to put you on the mailing list if you're interested in, in doing that. The other thing is, I just again want to express my appreciation for the fact that y'all are involved in the work that you're involved in working in the jails. The, the church that I'm at, on a given Sunday, we might have 10 to 15 men that have gotten out of prison and are worshiping with us. Some of those men that have been out for many years and some that maybe have only been out for a few days. And so it changes the complexion of the congregation some, and, and it's, it's different. It's a challenging work, and it's a different kind of work. As I said this morning, I just appreciate so much the congregation here and your willingness to, to be involved in that work, even on the jail level. And that work's more difficult because of the transient nature of those in jail. I think it's a, it's a harder work and sometimes can be more discouraging. So, again, the ladies and the men that are involved in that, congratulations. And I appreciate so much and it's encouragement to me that you're involved. Today I wanted to talk in 2 Kings chapter 21, if you turn your Bibles there. It'll tie in uh, with what we talked about actually early this morning also. One final thing before we get into the lesson. I appreciate too, those of you who had children that are grown and moving out and, and are, are kind of charting their own path. It's so comforting to have congregations like this. Jordan and Hannah moved here back in May. And to know that they found a group that's encouraging to them that will that they can help and that you can encourage them and and uh, prompt them to grow in their walk with Christ. So I appreciate that they speak so highly of the group here, and it's given me a chance to get to know get to know you today. And I, I appreciate y'all's investing in them and letting them be a part of the family here and the work that's being done here at Franklin. In Second Kings chapter 21, at the end of chapter 20. Uh, and Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh's son reigned in his place. I want to talk to you today about Manasseh. Maybe if you're a, a, an Old Testament king's buff, you know about Manasseh, maybe, or maybe he's kind of new to you today. Or I'm not going to teach you or tell you anything new that you've never heard before, but maybe just remind you about this man named Manasseh. I think we generally think David and Saul reigned about 40 years in their kingdoms. They were some of the longest kings in their reign that that any of the kings of Israel had been, but Manasseh reigned the longest. He reigned for 55 years. And next to, Hose, uh, next to Josiah, he was the youngest king. And so there's a lot of memorable things about Manasseh, but unfortunately, neither one of those are really the things. As we start in verse 1, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Immediately, we begin to see the kind of man Manasseh was. And I love this about the writer of Kings as he gets into here. He doesn't give us any fluff about Manasseh. He just immediately starts talking about this was an evil man. He'd done a lot of evil in the, in the sight of the Lord, according to or like the nations that were around them. 
You remember oftentimes God, when he sent the Israelites in the land of the Canaan, one of the reasons there, he was obviously giving them this land, was to punish these nations because they'd become so, so idolatrous, so evil, so, so involved in all these uh, immoral practices that God despised. In verse 3, For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and Asherah, as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. I want you to imagine that. He goes into the temple area, and as we'll see in a little bit, actually possibly in the temple proper, and he built altars to false gods. I, you know, we, we in the church talk about often that building's not sacred and rightfully so, right? It's funny, in prison, though, as you talk to chaplains and so many people, they refer to the chapel in a prison as God's house. And so it's always interesting. you got some men, when they walk in there, they feel a sense of uh, emotional uh, pressure, to be more reverent than they are right five minutes outside that door because of the place. Well, we're reading really about God's house here. This is a temple. This is where God dwelled. And Manasseh had such a low regard for God that he went into God's house and built altars so they could worship false gods within the temple. Remember, if you go back earlier and you read about Solomon when he, re he built the temple, do you remember all the sacri sacrifices, hundreds and hundreds of animals that they killed? And that the glory of the Lord descended on the temple. And how marvelous that was and how awestruck the people of Israel were. And here Manasseh, just a few generations later, is building idol altars within the temple. I mean, this is one of the worst guys you can ever read about in the Old Testament. And he's not just worshiping false gods. He's worshiping all the hosts of heaven. The idea of what we think of as astrology and the worship of stars and planets and how things move around each other and how that tells our future. He was involved in all of that. In verse 6, And he burned his son as an offering. And used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with wizards. And he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He burned his son. And some idea maybe he had sons. It's, it's uh, maybe more than one here. Burned his sons in offerings to these false gods. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's, that's a pretty despicable guy. Not only that, he was involved in all kinds of witchcraft and omens, fortune-telling, mediums, wizards. He was involved in it all. It's when we think about how our society has become so despicable, right? And we read about Satan worship and witchcraft. And, and I, I know men and have studied with men in the prisons that are involved in all those things. I mentioned in the class earlier about Odinism, the idea of the Viking gods and, and worshiping them and how, how so much of that is involved in about just satisfying the flesh and whatever you want to do is okay. We baptized a man a couple of months ago that was a priest in satanic worship. And as he sat down and talked to me, all the people he said that were involved in it and all the things that they would do as part of their worship, ungodly, immoral, awful things. I think about Manasseh. He was the guy that was the top guy in that in his time. He was involved in all that stuff. You can't think of anything that Manasseh wasn't involved in to the fact of burning his own children in the service to these false gods. Verse 7 and the carved image of Asherah that he made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and Solomon, his son, 
in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. I will put my name forever, and I will cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers. If only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So he not only put altars in the house of the Lord, but he actually put up this Asherah, this female goddess of fertility in the house of God. I don't know if you've uh, ever done this, but sometimes uh, Missy and I lived in Gainesville where the, uh, there's a brother here that used to uh, worship at Glen Springs. And we were there, they worshiped at the, was then called the Northeast Congregation. And sometimes when we're in town, we'll drive by the old building. And I, I think some other denomination has it now, or maybe they've turned it into some kind of store. But, and, and, you know, you, you kind of get an attachment to a place, don't you? Imagine driving by here in Franklin 50 years from now and telling your grandkids, hey, let's go by the old church building where we used to worship. And you drive by and you can pull up in the parking lot to see what it's like, and you see it's been turned into an idol's temple. Now, again, we know that building isn't anything sacred, but wouldn't that kind of bother you? Wouldn't that kind of turn your stomach a little bit? We, we used to worship God in that place. Here is the house of God, and they put Asherah in there. And it says he had done more evil than the very nations. God had sent his people in to drive out all these nations, and Manasseh had done more evil than any of them. Bad dude. Verse 10. And the Lord said by his servants to prophets, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, committed these abominations, has done these things more evil than all the Amorites did. Who are before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Israel and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. Do you know what that means, that idea their ears will tingle? Have you ever heard something and you just kind of mince? It sounds so bad. Maybe you're watching the news and something particularly graphic comes on. Or you hear something said and you just kind of squint a little bit. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about that everybody hears of what God's going to do to Judah because of Manasseh. But they'll just kind of wince. Their ears will tingle. It'll be so bad. Verse 13, And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they will become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies. Because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day of their fathers came out of Egypt even to this day. Now verse 16. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides the sin that he made Judah to sin so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Manasseh is credited with historically and traditionally with the killing of Isaiah. A lot of people think when he talks about this specifically here, they're talking specifically about his murder of Isaiah the prophet. It's said that what he did with Isaiah is he took a, a tree log and he hollowed it out and he put Isaiah in the tree log and then he had the log sawn in two, like you'd see in a magician's trick, but in actuality. That they literally took this great prophet of God, Isaiah, and they sawed him in two and Manasseh was responsible for that. What do you think about Manasseh? You get a warm, fuzzy feeling about him. Or when you hear that God is going to rain down and, and, and condemning and punishing him for what he does, 
don't you kind of like in a movie when the bad guy finally gets it, don't you kind of say, yeah, that guy needed it. Turn with me, if you would, to to a couple chapters over in chapter 24 of 2 Kings. What's so interesting is that Manasseh has a son. His name is Josiah, grandson, actually, Josiah, who's one of the great reformers uh, in the the history of Judah. And then also his father was Hezekiah, who was another great reformer. So in between these two righteous men, you have this unrighteous man, Manasseh. And in chapter 24, starting in verse 1, talking about now Jehoiakim's reign, And in his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him, and the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans, and bands of the Syrians, and bands of the Moabites, and bands of the Ammonites, and he sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. So this is the end. Jehoiakim is the last king that's going to reign before they go into Babylonian captivity. Verse 3. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord would not pardon. So we get to Jehoiakim and and if you you read in Jeremiah, and we'll turn to Jeremiah chapter 15 in just a second, you read that and you think, wow, this nation has just gotten so bad that God's finally had enough and he's punishing them. But even in the midst of that with Jehoiakim, and he's about to send Babylon in now to wipe them out totally and to carry the rest of them into captivity, he says the reason was for it was Manasseh, the shedding of innocent blood that Manasseh had done. Turn over to Jeremiah chapter 15. Jeremiah chapter 15, as he talks about, again, Jeremiah the prophet, as he talks about why God is going to punish this nation. This is before the time of Jehoiakim here in chapter 15. And starting in verse 1, Then the Lord said to me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. And when they ask you, Where shall we go? And you say to them, Thus says the Lord, For those who are for pestilence to pestilence, And those for the sword to the sword, and those who for famine to famine, and those for captivity to captivity, I will appoint over them four kinds of destroyers, declares the Lord, the sword to kill, the dogs to tear, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. And I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. Jeremiah says God's going to send all these destroyers to you. He's going to wipe you out. Because of Manasseh. I'd like Manasseh to, to been in your family. How would you like to have been your cousin? Do you think of the shame that would be involved in that? You wouldn't want anybody to know, would you? Would you want Manasseh? Yeah, that's my brother. Yeah, we, 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 we don't really invite him to any of the family functions anymore because he's so evil. Oh, yeah, he was my, he was my grandfather. We don't really want to talk about him. He's so bad. That was Manasseh. That's the reality of Manasseh in his life. Do you feel sorry for Manasseh? Do you feel any... Or do you kind of say, yeah, finally he got what he deserved? Well, Chronicles even gives us a better explanation of his punishment. In 2 Chronicles chapter 33, turn there. Because you really can't understand the full port of Manasseh until you look at both of the stories. In 2 Chronicles chapter 33, and I'm going to read quickly, but Chronicles deals with specifically 
how God punished Manasseh. Again, in 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 1, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals, and he made Asherahs, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served them, and he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts, the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And he used fortune telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with wizards. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Sounds a lot like 2 Kings, doesn't it? Verse 7. And the carved image of the idol that he made and he set in the house of God, in which God said to David and to Solomon his son in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes, the rules given through Moses. Verse 9, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Now verse 10, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, and they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. The idea there is that historians say that they would often use, especially with vanquished royalty, the idea of hooks. And exactly where they're hooked, there's some disagreement, but most people think probably the hooks went right in here at your collarbone. Just feel up there, you young people. You feel your collarbone right there? Can you feel that? Imagine somebody taking a big fishing hook that was about this big and just sticking it through there and hooking you on your collarbones and then tying those to chains and then leading you to a foreign land. And I'm sure if this was played out in Hollywood, as soon as the hook went into Manasseh, there would have been cheering in the audience. Yeah! It's like when Josie Wales shoots the bad guy. The audience cheers. That's what happened to Manasseh. God asked him to repent. He wouldn't repent. God sends the Assyrians down to him. And what does he do? He leads him into Assyrian captivity with chains of bronze and to Babylon. He brings him to Babylon in chains of bronze and he locks him up. And then in verse 12, And when he was in distress... He entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And he prayed to him and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. I tell you what, just take something and just tear that right out of your Bible. How dare Manasseh pray to God and ask for forgiveness after all he'd done. Remember, he'd worship the Baals. He'd worship the Asherahs. He'd brought in gods into the house of God. He had killed his own children and burned them in the Valley of Hinnom. 
He had brought uh, uh, astrology and the worship of the heavenly host. He brought every kind of false religion into the nation of Israel. He was worse than any other nation before God. God asked him to repent and he wouldn't do it. God punishes him as him taken into captivity. And what does he have the audacity to do? He cries out to God. He prays to God. And what does God do? He forgives him. He forgives him. Of all the people that don't deserve forgiveness, Manasseh is the one. Now, maybe you're sitting there and saying, you know, he's a bad guy, but he didn't really, you know, I don't have a lot of strong emotional strength to, 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 toward Manasseh. Well, what if he had killed your child and burned him in the fire? Manasseh you, reigned in Franklin, and he'd taken, I don't know, this pretty little girl right over here, and he burned her in the fire. And I imagine there's some people here that are attached to this little girl. And finally, he'd ravaged the nation. The church here was in distress because of his idolatry. Finally, God sends the Assyrians in to capture him. Maybe you're applauding as they carry him out of the city. And then you hear that while he's in Babylon, he's cried out to God that God's forgiven him. And before you know it, what do you see? He's marching back into town, not with hooks in him but with his crown on his head again. And God has restored him to his place in the kingdom. And all you can think about every time you see him is that little girl whom he burned to his false gods. How do you feel about him now? You see, it, when we think about people who've done terrible things, it's real easy to think in the abstract. And it's real easy to be okay with these things. And we see God's forgiveness. We see and we say, wow, what mercy that God has showed. And then we relate it to our own lives. And we say, could I have forgiven Manasseh? And it'd be one thing, I guess, too, if he'd have forgiven him. And he left him in that dungeon for about 30 or 40 years. And maybe he just died there, you know, and you never had to deal with him. But he brings him back. And look what happens. Verse 14. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David, west of Gihon, in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate. And he carried it around to Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah. So every time you saw that wall, what would you think of? Oh, yeah, that's the wall Manasseh built. The guy who burned that little girl in the fire that day. Every time you saw the wall. Verse 15, he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he'd built on the mountain on the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. He commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Can you imagine him coming back? And here's the king's edict. Manasseh's back in town. He's got a new edict. He's commanding us to worship God. How dare he? Have you ever said that about somebody? How dare they tell me about doing something when they've done all these things? How dare this man who burned children to his false gods, who put an idol in the house of God, how dare he now command us to worship and serve God? In verse 18, now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God, and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty. 
and all his sin and his faithlessness. And the sites on which he built high places and set up the ashram and the images before he humbled himself. Behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers and they buried him in his house. And Amnon, his son, reigned in his place. You know what? If you've ever read the apocryphal books, there is a book in the apocryphal books called the prayer of Manasseh. And whether Manasseh actually wrote it or not, I don't know. But there are a large number of people who think it's accurately ascribed to him. And I'll just read you. It's only 15 verses, and that's the whole book. But I'll just read you parts of it. He cries out, The Lord God Almighty. He says, For thou art the Most High Lord of great compassion, long-suffering, very merciful. He goes on to say, O Lord, thou art the God of the just, hast not appointed repentance to the just, as to Abraham and Isaac and to Jacob, which have not sinned against thee, but thou hast appointed repentance unto me, then am a sinner." For I have sinned above the number of the sands of the sea. My transgressions, O Lord, are multiplied. My transgressions are multiplied. I'm not worthy to behold and see the height of heaven for the multitude of mine iniquities. I am bowed down with many iron bands that I cannot live, I cannot live up, lift up mine head, neither have any release. For I have provoked thy wrath and done evil before thee. I did not thy will, neither kept I thy commandments. I have set up abominations and have multiplied offenses. Now therefore I bow the knee of mine heart, beseeching thee of grace. I have sinned, O Lord, I have sinned, and I acknowledge my iniquities. Wherefore I humbly beseech thee, forgive me, O Lord, forgive me, and destroy me not with my iniquities. Be not angry with me forever by reserving evil from me, neither condemn me to the lower parts of the earth. For thou art the God, even the God of them that repent. And in me thou wilt show all thy goodness. For thou wilt save me, and I am unworthy according to thy great mercy. Therefore I praise thee forever all the days of my life. All the powers of the heavens do praise thee, and thine is the glory forever and ever. Amen. That sounds good, but what about all the people he hurt? The brother referenced in the talk for the Lord's Supper, the genealogy of Jesus. And if you go to Matthew chapter 1, we won't turn there. But if you go down there and just go through the begats, and you know who you run into? Manasseh. He's in the lineage of Jesus Christ. This baby killer. This murderer sawed Isaiah the prophet in two brought in idolatrous worship to the temple, was an, in astrology, connecting with the dead. He is forgiven by God and becomes known forever in the lineage of Jesus Christ. How do you feel about that? Do you read the story of Manasseh and see that and do you cry out, Hallelujah, God, thank you for your mercy and your grace? Or do you say, man, I'm glad Manasseh doesn't worship here. You see, it's easy to talk about forgiveness. It's easy to talk about, let's go into the jails and the prisons, and let's just go find people, and let's teach them about Jesus. That's fine. But do you understand what they've done? I work with men on a regular basis who have hurt children. 
I've worked with sex offenders, had many sex offenders come out into our program. I've had them into our home eating dinner. At one time, we had six men that were sex offenders that were members of our congregation. I've dealt with men that have murdered people. I've dealt with men who've never hurt their children sexually, but they've abused their children in every other way you can imagine. I've met with men who bought the drugs that their child used to commit suicide. Baptize that man into Christ. What we finally have to ask ourselves is when we read the story of Manasseh, and it might be something that we really, frankly, don't like very much, and that is the reality is, is that anybody can be forgiven. And I don't, I'm not sure in general in the Lord's church that we believe that. I mean, frankly, we've had people that literally have told us at Middleburg that we are not going to attend there because you have a man there that's a sex offender. Therefore, we will not worship with you. We've had people that came and we converted a couple uh, a few years ago and they began to worship with us and loved it. And they were growing and everything was great. And one of the men who'd been through my program we do a graduation for men that come through the program, uh, you know, at a restaurant somewhere and try to really, you know, uh, make it a special occasion. And so the men that have, that have gone through the program before, I always allow them to invite a guest that they want to bring. And this brother that had been out now for several years invited this couple to come to this occasion. And you know what happened because of that? They got there and they're looking at and there were half the men that I introduced as men that had been in prison or formerly there, and they were shocked because they didn't know the very men they'd been sitting with, participating in the worship with all that time, were men that had been in prison. They left about two weeks after that. I mean, there's just some realities. Yeah, you know, you know what, you talk to people about somebody on drugs, and you say, you know what, yeah, everybody makes mistakes. I can do that. You know, I don't know of anybody personally that way. But I tell you, in some ways, I can just, when I sit and, and, and we, we do a 12-step, because even men in lower security prisons that don't have sex offenders, you know what they, you know who they hate? They hate sex offenders. And while they want forgiveness for everything they've done, they, that's a different thing. They, they put them in a special category. And so we're sitting around, I say, well, you know, how many, most sex offenders, you know, probably actually hurt just a few children, less than, less than five, normally, normally one, typically, and not, that's not terrible, but I say, and, and you were, a, you say you were a, a dope dealer, right? Yeah, you sold drugs. I said, how many men do you think you sold dope to or women that went home and didn't take care of their child and destroyed the lives of many, many, many children? You did that, and yet somehow you think you should be forgiven, and that guy shouldn't. I said, to tell you the truth, since I've been working in the prisons, you know how person I have the hardest time forgiving is drug dealers. Because frankly, I just see the ravaged life of drug dealers all over the place and how many hundreds and thousands of people one man can destroy the lives in. If we're going to categorize sin, then who gets to make the list? Who gets to say, okay, these sins are on the okay to forgive list, but yet on my list, these are not. Who wants to make that list? Because what would happen is, there might be some sins on my list that don't forgive that you've committed. And how are we going to deal with each other that way? And when some of the things you found out that I've committed are on your list, how am 
I going to sit next to you on a pew? How am I going to be in fellowship with you in our service? You see, Jesus struggled with the same thing, the, the passage that Jordan read in Mark, right? He said the, the reason they, they struggled with Jesus so much is because they didn't realize that the sick need a physician and that they're all sick. Do you see the problem, brethren? We're all just like Manasseh. And if it weren't for me being raised in a family that taught me values and it helped me to know the truth, despite that, some of the things I've done in my life, that I'm a hair's breadth probably from doing everything he did and maybe more. We begin to believe that there's just something inherently good about us because we've been raised right. And there's nothing inherently good about us. Over and over, what did Jesus decry? Over and over. Look at Luke chapter 7. And there's just so many places we could go, and, and I'm going to run out of time here. I didn't ask for a quitting time. I was smart in that regard, so that way I can't be accused of not following the protocol. And Luke chapter 7 is a story, starting in verse 36, of this sinful woman. Right? And Jesus goes into a Pharisee's house. He's not even named at the beginning of the story. And there's a woman there who is a sinner, Luke tells us. Luke's a detailed guy. He wants us to know that from the beginning. And she gets the flask out, right? And she anoints Jesus' feet. And she cries and she wipes his feet, right? Through verse 39. In verse 39, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman who he was touching him and that she is a sinner. I did the deep voice for drama. He invited Jesus into his house, and he's stepping back, and he said, You know what? I don't know about y'all. There's no prophet that I know of that would hang out with a woman like that and let her wash his feet. I mean, you know, we, we all are sinners, but are you serious? And look what Jesus says to him. Verse 40. And Jesus answered him and said, Simon, he calls him by name now, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors, and one he owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered into your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little and he said to her your sins are forgiven do you understand that one of the most profound things jesus ever said he said if for a minute you think you're not like this woman then that says what about you you must not love god very much but if you think you could be her 
If you think, you know what? If I would have done this there in that situation when I was tempted, if I would have been allowed to do what I was thinking that day, then I could have been there. Then you know what? Every time you go to God and every time you ask Him for forgiveness for the little thing you did, you will remember that you're capable of the big thing because it will cause you to love God more. But when we're not like Manasseh, we're not like those people we're going in and teaching. We're not like that guy that showed up at the service or that woman that showed up at the service. We're not like them. You know what it says? We don't love God as much as we should. Because when God looks at us, He saw us just like Manasseh. And the day that you committed whatever the worst sin you've ever done, and you got on your knees, or a month afterward, or six months after, or maybe it took ten years for you to finally humble yourself. But when we drop to our knees and ask God that day for forgiveness, you know what He did? He forgave us. Just like He did Manasseh. You see, Manasseh gives me hope. Because there are times I wonder, how could God love me? Some of the things that go through my mind. Some of the things that I've done in despite the fact that I've known better. And I was taught right. How could God love me? And I remember Manasseh. And I, I tell guys this all the time. I said, man, you've done some bad things. But I said, I don't, I don't think you've even done anything worse than Manasseh. Brother, Manasseh is hope for us. He's hope for every one of us. Anyone can be forgiven. In the story of Manasseh, we don't have time to go into this, but without humility and repentance, there is no forgiveness. This is not to say that, okay, well, this, we just go out... And, and no matter what people have done, and we just automatically offer them forgiveness. That's not it at all. God does not extend forgiveness to Manasseh until Manasseh humbles himself and he prays to God. God is willing to forgive him, and we should be willing. But a relationship with people can't be what it's right. I work with men in prison all the time that don't care about changing. My relationship with them is much different than the men that I work with that are trying to get their lives right. There are men in prison that I have given my credit card to. There are men in prison that when I meet with them, I got my hand on my wallet. So I'm not naive. This is not about naivete. Remember, forgiveness is not minimizing what's done. To work with people who are sinners, you don't have to have a blind eye. You don't minimize what they've done. Manasseh, what he did is there forever. And Judah goes into captivity because of what Manasseh did. That's what Jeremiah said. So it's not like he's glossing over it. That's why it's so interesting. If you just read Kings, you think it's over with with the guy. So the Bible's not glossing over. It's not minimizing what Manasseh did. Forgiveness does not mean minimization. Forgiveness does not mean forgetting what was done. They would never forget the day he burned their child in the fire. Nobody would ever forget that. Forgiveness is not about forgetting what was done. And forgiveness is not about ignoring the consequences of what's been done. 
It does not mean that we, when we forgive people, they come in and they worship with us or we help them out and we just forget about the consequences. Forgiveness is promised. Forgiveness is commanded. Trust is earned. Manasseh had to show himself to be true to God. Why do you think there in Chronicles it lists all the deeds he did? What is he showing us? Exactly what John the Baptist told him in Matthew chapter 3. Hey, come to me, repent, and do works. Do fruits of repentance. Show God. Show everybody that you've changed. There are consequences for what you've done. You have to earn respect back. Your family shouldn't trust you because you just got out of prison. The church you attend shouldn't trust you just because you've gotten out of prison. Wisdom says you have to earn that back. That's part of the consequence. If I've truly humbled myself, you know what I say to that? You know what men that I work with that see that say? Whatever it takes, I'm willing to do it. Sorry for the first few weeks you're at the transition program. I don't want your family coming over and visiting you. Sorry, the first few weeks you're there, uh, I'm not going to let you go back down to where you're from and visit for the weekend. No, I don't trust you yet. Some men fight me on that from the day they get out. And you know what? Every one of them fails. But the guy who voluntarily, I have no right over this man. He's a grown man who voluntarily says, or the guy who comes to the eldership here and he says, look, I'm just thankful that anybody will even talk to me after what I've done. And that you brethren would come and visit me in jail and care enough about me. What do I need to do to be a part of your group here? Whatever it takes, I'm willing to do it. That's the humility that true repentance shows. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. There's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. I see worldly sorrow every day. Rarely do I see godly sorrow. It's there. I'll leave you with this final verse. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9. It's a verse that we know that we use when we're combating Calvinism. Because we show that God wants everybody to be saved. But I want you to think of it in this way. In 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness. But is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Do you hear that? If we believe it in one sense to combat a Calvinist, then we have to believe it in this sense. There is not a person living that God's will is not for them to come to repentance. Will we accept them if God does? That's the question. Will we love them when God loves them? Or we always have a list tacked deep down in our psyche that says, not that. Oh, not that. Oh, I can never imagine myself doing that. Not that. And we exclude them from the family of God that is supposed to be the kingdom of God. We don't have a right to do that, brother. If you're not a Christian this morning then you have a chance to become one. And I don't know what you've done. And there may be people around you that will shake your hand today and pat you on the back and think you're the greatest person in the world. But in your heart right now, you know that you're closer to Manasseh than you are to that brother or sister that shook your hand. It's okay. God loves you. And I believe there are brethren here that will love you. You need to come have a relationship with Christ. 
You need to have your sins forgiven by the blood of Jesus. You need to die. You need to get on your knees like Manasseh did if you're already a Christian. And you need to cry out to God and say, how could you love somebody like me? But then claim the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus Christ. Just like we all do. If you're subject to the invitation, come as we stand and sing.